Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Good evening, everyone. Rabbi Mel here, like I was last week and like I'll probably be next week and forever, forever, forever. And it's good to be back with you. I have a special guest tonight. He is a friend of mine, a personal friend of mine. He belongs to my congregation, so he's stuck listening to me every single week. Now, you just think about that. See, you guys, you listen to me. You know, once a week, he listened to me every week. So anyway, his name is David Arnstein. I'm going to read you the bio that his son write because he's too modest to write his own. And then we'll start talking. If you had asked David Arnstein as a child what he wanted to do when he grew up, he wouldn't have told you he wanted to sell pencils. Nor would he have told you that he wanted to become a rabbi. Today, he is not a rabbi. He does sell pencils and pens, paper, printer toners, and office furniture. But if you ask today what he may have been, had he known better as a child, had he had the life experience he now has at 58, he would tell you that he should have become a rabbi. His rabbi agrees, but that's not in the bio. David was born in De- David, you could laugh. It's okay. They okay. Like- <laughs> David was born in Detroit, Michigan. He did not grow up Jewish, though his father was an ethnic Jew, and most of his neighbors and family friends were practicing Jews. David is enjoying his recovery from cancer, and he's my guest to remind us all that faith works. He is the happiest cancer survivor you have ever met, and that's true. Good evening, my friend David. How are you? Good to talk to you, Rabbi. Thank you for having me on your program. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for agreeing to be on my program. So when we spoke um, this morning, I told you that I was going to start, since the name of the show is Morning with a You to Morning Without a You, that I was going to ask you to start wherever you wanted to and tell us the bad news first, and then later on we'll get to the good news. So go ahead. All right. I'm actually going to start with some good news first. My life life had been working and going along swimmingly. I'm athletic. I ski. I hike. I kayak. I golf. I'm in great shape. No health issues. Have always been perfect, never needing to go to a doctor. And then two and a half years ago, I had some symptoms, which were shortly after a colonoscopy that that I had. And I thought, hmm, this doesn't look so good. And of course, I went to the internet and did some research on the symptoms, and it began to look really not so good. But I didn't delay. I went straight to the doctor to, uh, to get it checked out. And uh, from there, um, I had another colonoscopy just a year and a half after the previous one, which was, which was fine. And when I woke up after my colonoscopy, 
the doctor is standing by my bedside and says, I'm sorry to say that you have cancer. Now, I guess the question one would ask is, were you prepared for that? Well, I was, because I had about two weeks from the time the doc says, you've got to get a colonoscopy until I had the colonoscopy. So it allowed me two weeks to contemplate the possibility of cancer. Wow. It was a time that I felt not quite grounded. Many thoughts were going through my head, but of course it was the unknown. It was the unknown that I found to be the most nerve-wracking. Not, that, not that, that I would maybe have cancer. Yes, that's fine, whatever. But it was more, I just have to know. I have to know now. Can the colonoscopy be tomorrow? It was the waiting that was the most difficult. After that... What happened? Yeah, go ahead. So when the, the doctor at my bedside says, you have cancer, what did I do? I said, hmm, it's probably what I suspected. He says, I already have talked to the surgeon, and we will be scheduling you for surgery next week. Now, I'm a little groggy after the colonoscopy, and I think, all right, that's pretty darn quick. But then I started thinking as I became more lucid, huh, that must be kind of serious because you need to cut it out. So that was bad news. But, you know, colon cancer is treatable. Um, I had had one a year and a half ago. How far could it have progressed? Well, I had my colectomy. And during my, after my colectomy, um, where they remove a section of my large intestine, um, the next day, actually I was told that night, but I don't recall because I was not quite with it. My son was there and Rebecca, my partner, was there and they said, you have stage four colon cancer. You don't want to hear that, right? You don't want to hear the stage four. No, you don't. And I didn't know it at the time. At the time, stage four was, I know that's the bad stage. But, you know, we have changed our, our, our dialogue and our messaging and how we discuss and talk about cancer now. And that is that you, stage four is really synonymous with terminal. I didn't know that at the time, which is probably a good thing. Um, I think they only use terminal now when they give you, oh, you've got a few months to live. Okay. But stage four, I said, okay. And so I'm hit with this from my family. And, you know, I try to take it in. But I had so many questions, so many questions. And the questions could not be answered by them. I needed to talk to the doctor. And I, did, I was in the hospital, so I didn't have my computer next to me to search Dr. Google MD. Right. And so that was, that was, that for me there was a little bit of a shock, but where I saw the shock, the greatest shock was in my family and their face and the fear that I saw in their faces. I didn't feel that fear. But it struck you, me. You didn't, you didn't feel the fear of disappearing from this earth and not just... Not at that point. Nothing? Not nothing. It was a shock like, oh, wow, that's some news, and you have to process it. But that, it, was, it was 
not something that produced tears. It was not something that produced total existential angst. Um, it was more I looked at my family and thought, oh, no, for them. My concern was them. They were scared. I wasn't scared yet. They were scared. Let me ask you a question. Let me stop you for a minute. Um, I understand what you're saying. Is it possible that being afraid for your family at that time was sort of like uh, protective shields uh, against your own personal fear for yourself? It's easier to worry about your family than it is about you. Yeah, I, I believe, I believe it, it was indeed a, a, a protective mechanism. It was, however, it, I don't think I understood the, the depth of it. In other words, I wasn't hit with a ton of bricks. Instead, it was, huh, I need to process this. I took it more intellectually than I did emotionally. And then from that process on, as I began to learn more about the severity of, of, of this stage four colon cancer and what's involved. And um, when I found out the stats that 50% of those who are diagnosed with, with colon cancer are dead the following year and only 10% survive four to five years. It's when I heard that statistic that I read it. My doctor didn't tell me that. I looked it up. And it was then, I think, where I had the greatest impact. Where I said, wow. Then it and was so pers- there was a progression of yeah, right. dealing with it. It was like one brick at a time rather than one whole big truckload of bricks on top of me. Which, metaphorically speaking, might have been better for you, not for your family, right. but for you. Because had you died on the table, let's say, or had you died in a month, you only would have had to suffer for a month. Your family, on the other hand, would still be suffering. Yeah, that's, the suffering goes there. You know, when all is said and done, I won't be suffering if I'm not here. They'll continue to suffer. And that, to me, still is, the, is my greatest pain in this. So... After, the, the, after processing the diagnosis, um, they said, well, we're going to go ahead and do chemotherapy for three months and see where, where things go. And things look really good. I handled the, the chemotherapy fairly well. I do have some, some permanent um, uh, disabilities from it, some peripheral neuropathy. Um, but what does that mean? I, I still came to work. I still went to work. Okay. I, what you just said, what does that mean? Peripheral neuropathy is the, there's one of the drugs in the cancer cocktail that I received that one of the side effects is a, is it that it damages the nerves in your peripheral, in your, in your hands and in your feet. Um, often it's not permanent, but in my case it has been. And, uh, and what it does is it makes it, it, your feet tingle and are numb and painful at the same time. You usually don't use numb and painful 
in the same sentence. If it's numb, it's not painful. It's very strange. So walking barefoot, even on plush carpet, is uncomfortable. Um, so I wear Crocs all the time. It's the most comfortable thing on my feet. <laughs> so that's the peripheral neuropathy. And uh, from there, the, the, the chemo, um, I did all right. I came to work, and, uh, you know, I'd been at noon. I felt fatigue. That's another word that is really interesting. If you've never had chemo, you don't really understand the word fatigue. You know, you think fatigue is, oh, I just ran five miles, I'm fatigued, or, or I didn't have a good night's sleep last night, I'm fatigued. But this fatigue and yuck feeling is something, there's no word I, that I can find in our language that, the, that can describe that yuck, cancer, chemo. Well, I, think, I think of what you're talking about is you were, you were wrung out, um, like a wash rag that got squeezed too many times and you had to put your little self in bed for a couple hours and uh, that was, <laughs> that's the only thing you could do, right? What else could you do? <laughs> it went more than a couple hours. It might happen at noon and yeah. uh, then at five o'clock it's time to go home. <laughs> I'm waking up. <laughs> and that was your most productive day all week, probably. <laughs> right. But, um, and then after that, there was some good news. The good news was that I was a candidate for a liver resection. And a liver resection is removing a portion of the liver where there is um, cancer tumors that had appeared. And that's not a simple operation. It's, it's pretty major. And, it's, uh, and it takes some time to recuperate. Um, and that was in April of 2015. And I handled it very well. And then I got the best news. No cancer where they showed cancer. In the CAT scan, there was no cancer there. The pathology came back and they couldn't find any cancer. It was microscopic. So obviously, I responded very well. Or the cancer responded terribly to the chemo. My body, not so much. <laughs> And um, so that was good news. Everything looks good. They, do they have an explanation? I mean, are you the one percenter that, that where the cancer goes away for a while? Yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was interesting because there have been a few papers written on this. And, you know, again, I'm not a doctor, uh, so I don't know all the details of this. But uh, according to my oncologist, it was a very, very rare occurrence where, where there were numerous spots um, and they cut those spots out, that section of the liver. They could not find cancer there. Yet they had seen it progress and get larger over the course of after my, my colectomy. So it was very unusual, um, and it was good news. And the hope was, of course, that, hey, this might, this is, I'm cancer-free right now. And my doctor says there are two words, my oncologist, says there are two words I don't like to use and don't like to say. And they're both C words, cancer and cure. Mm. Because cancer is a scary word, and it's hard for people to digest and say that you've got it. And cure, because cancer is so unpredictable. That to go ahead and say cure 
they don't like to say it because they're so often wrong. It looks like it is, but it's not. Is cancer ever cured permanently? Yes. It is? Yes. Um, there are different types of cancers, you know, where things go into remission and then you, you might go five years and it'll, it'll come mm-hmm. back. There are other mm-hmm. cancers, uh, such as mine, that essentially really don't go into remission. I, I, my understanding is that with colon cancer, chemo itself will not cure you. The only way to cure you is to cut it out or burn it out through various techniques. Um, but the, 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 any, any um, chemo that you receive will reduce the spots and provide greater longevity in life. Okay. Let's stop with longevity. We got to take a break. And we'll be back. Now, listen, my listeners, this does not get scary. This gets good. So stick around, and David and I will be right back. Find out what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, everybody. Rabbi Mel, I'm back with you with my good friend David Arnstein, who is my guest tonight. We just spent the first segment talking about his diagnosis of his liver cancer and what happened after that. And then he took another uh, test or two, and um, God bless, the cancer was gone. He was in remission. 
So I just asked him if um, he was one of those one percenters that deals with cancer and then never sees it again. And he told me that there are two kinds of of cancer survivors. One, you get cancer and then it goes away for five years or so and it may come back. And second is it uh, goes away for longer than that. And, and that's what David is so far. So we like that. So uh, during the break, I was talking to David about um, when he came back from the, from his surgery, people's what well, David talk about a little bit about, people's reactions to you, like in the synagogue? Did they, how did they talk to you well, or not? Well, well there were, there's, I, I think there's, I might have to back up a little bit here because I am extremely open with my, my condition because I know that it's very difficult for people to go ahead and address the issue. You know, they'll say, I am so sorry. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're dealing with this. How are you feeling? And that's, those are fine sentiments. But then often they don't know what to say after that. And they say, you know, I have a friend who did this, this, and this. They went to Mexico. Right. Right. Uh, they had the, the non-acidic diet. And, and what they're doing is they're showing compassion because they don't know what to say. And I think what I attempt to do is to be very open about what I'm dealing with, how I'm feeling, what's going on so that they don't have to ask the questions. I'll just tell them. Because it's very difficult to ask the questions. I know for myself, when I've encountered cancer, um, people living with cancer um, in the past before my own, I said the same things they did. So it's... it's you don't know because society never... Society doesn't teach us what to say when somebody is suffering a loss. Yeah. And, 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 and often, scary. as you just said, you know, we'll have a, like a pain Olympics to see whose pain is worse. <laughs> I have an uncle who had, you know, blah, blah, blah. Or I had an aunt oh, who, yeah, that's the other or aspect. I know how you feel because um, I didn't like the hospital that you were in and my uncle didn't like it either. Right. Or fill oh, in the you're blank. You're right. You're exactly they right. They just don't know. They want to be compassionate. But the problem is when they say things like that, the emphasis is on them and not on you. That's correct. And, and I'm okay with that. I recognize it because I've been on their side as well. But there is something that is interesting, that among those people living with cancer and going through these treatments, there is a camaraderie. Then there is the shared story, not rather than, saying, oh, my uncle or my father, but when it's themselves, then yes. there's a bond. There's a bond just like there are bonds with Jews. <laughs> we are yes, part of a fraternity. It is, it is, we are together in right. this struggle for life. Well, I, I sort of, I don't know what you mean. I mean, I'm not you, and I didn't go through chemo and all that, and I, I thank God I didn't have cancer, but I had a little arthritis a few years ago, and I went for some uh, methotrexate treatment, which means you sit in the in the easy chair in the lounge chair for three hours, uh, twice a week, and you get this thing up your you know in your arm, and that's what you do. Now I didn't much care. For me, it was like a day off because I brought my my iPad and I read on my Kindle, 
wasn't a big deal. It was nice, actually. I didn't have to talk to anybody. But there were three or four people in the room at the same time getting, you know, the same treatments. And that's when, as you just said, that's when the honesty um, began because we knew we were on a, it, it was like being in a secret club. And we could talk to each other knowing that we weren't going to be judgmental and nobody's going to say, well, you smoke too much. That's why you got cancer or whatever. We just shared with each other in a loving, compassionate, kind way. And it was very humanizing and very empowering to just hear the stories. The problem is there were some ladies there who wouldn't be quiet. And I just wouldn't read my story. You know how I am when I get like that. So, but I understand what you're saying. In a sense, the sick heals the well. In other words, the victim, namely you, uh, takes care of people because they don't know what to say. So you say it for them and you make it easy for them to join your conversation. Yeah, I think that's what I do. I don't know if it's effective or not, but... They sit around and listen. <laughs> it's, it's, I'll tell you, it is very, I've seen people, it is very effective. I mean, I've watched people in the synagogue come up to you and give you a hug and they don't know what to say. And you start talking to them and, yeah. and, you know, their attention is riveted on you and your story. And after two minutes, three minutes, whatever, you know, they feel much better because A, they know you're not going to die in front of them. B, they know you're not going to die tomorrow. You have a future. This is not a death sentence. And you're living with it. And, and that will help them the next time they see you. They won't be so, I don't want to say impersonal, but they will focus on you and not on them. Because you have helped them yeah. do that. You've been their teacher. You made that one point, living, because I'm the one living with it. And I like to make that distinction uh, between uh, living with cancer versus battling cancer. And I don't like the terminology of fight against cancer and a battle against cancer. Um, the reason being is that when you battle something, you're a warrior. And there's a winner, a loser, and at times a stalemate. You're either cured, you die. Or you go into remission. But what are the emotions that a soldier would feel in battle? Fear, physical pain, emotional pain, anxiety, horror, sadness, depression. If I'm in battle for my life, the last thing I want to do is spend my days with those emotions. You see, we have choices. I did not choose cancer. However, I do have the choice of how I respond to it. And I'm not going to battle it, but I'm going to live with it. You know, around my treatments, my surgeries, the yuckiness during chemo, I just take it and do it. And the difference is, I, I use the analogy of, of a little boy or a little girl who the parents say, um, go brush your teeth. They battle their parents about having to brush their teeth. Yet, as adults, we brush our teeth two to three times a day, and we don't make a big deal about it. We just do it and move on. Well, that's what I'm doing also with dealing with my cancer, living with the cancer. 
I just deal with it and move on. Just in December, I had a second liver resection where they removed 30% of my liver. And here I am up and about doing everything I was up and about um, not long afterwards. Doctors were amazed. Fortunately, I'm a good candidate for surgery. <laughs> That's great. That's just so wonderful to know, David. Um, but, but I just move on. I don't fret about it. I just say, I have no choice. This is what they're going to do to me. Or, have I, you, of course, I do have the choice. I can say, don't do anything to me and let me die. Yeah, well, that's not a choice. Um, there are a lot of people who would kill you first if you ever said that. <laughs> and you and I who know, we, who know who we all are. Anyway, what about liver transplants? Is that a possibility? Generally not. As I understand it, when you have cancer... Um, metastatic cancer in your liver, the, the ability to accept another one, an, another liver, and to, with all the, the drugs you need to take so you don't reject it, that you are weakened anyway, and cancer can come right back with greater vengeance is what I understand. So it's generally not done in stage four colon cancer issues. Okay. Um, but remember, my, my liver regenerates. I've got a healthy liver. Right. Um, all that's in there are these darn little cancer cells. And um, so though they took less than 20% out the first time, 30% out a year nine, eight months later, um, it sounds like 50% that I would have 50% of a liver, but I don't. My liver expands to handle what is necessary for my body for, for what a liver needs to do for my, for my body. So my, health, my liver is healthy. It's the cancer that's the problem. Yeah. You know what you said before about the difference between fighting cancer and living with cancer and being a warrior. Um, uh, it seems to me in a way that if you feel like you're battling, you're in mortal combat with cancer, you've already, part of you has already died. You've already given in because you've let the cancer take over your life. You, David Arnstein, has not let that happen. I think that's a very good point. You know, I I did go on to some message boards just to see what was going on because people have recommended. You can see how others are are handling the cancer. Um, Those same people who there are message boards for, people with colon cancer is stage four and all the situations that they have. And I perused some of these and, and I can see how it's extremely helpful for a lot of people. It helps them. But I think the point you make is right. There's what they're doing is they're obsessing about the cancer and not living their life. Yeah. Because I still get up in the morning. I am no different now with cancer than I was before cancer. I'm the same upbeat, happy guy. And I don't let the, these demon thoughts enter my mind. They don't happen. That's not to say the occasional time where it usually it occurs when one of my family are concerned that then I maul it over in the night. Yeah, but, uh, yeah right. it, but, it, but really, I have made, just like I said, I make a choice of how to respond to it. I'm not going to let it beat me it might beat me physically, and it, and, and it may get me, 
but I'm not going to let it beat me emotionally. I'm not going to let it beat me in the things that I enjoy and do every single day. I don't want that distraction. I move forward. And I, for me, how did I get there? I don't know. Rabbi, I just, I've made this mental thing in my head that I said, I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to follow what the doctors say. I have great confidence in my doctors. And here I am. I get up and do everything like I always do. I don't really feel like I've got a monkey on my back. To use that terminology, I really don't. I'm not thinking about it. I just live until, you know, it's time to get a scan or a surgery. And then you go, hmm, the monkey's here. I'm going to shake its hand. Right. Be be good to me. (laughs) How How has your positive attitude affected your family, parents, kids, all that? I think it's been a tremendous blessing for them. Because if you think of just taking care of a sick child, and if, you know, they've got strep throat, they've got strep throat, and they're crying and crying and crying, and you can't console them, you can't help them, and they just seem miserable, which makes you feel more miserable. But if the kid with strep throat, you know, says, it hurts, it hurts, oh, here's some hot tea and honey. Oh, it feels so much better, Daddy. How do you feel then? You say, oh, feeling better. But it's not put on either. I'm not faking it, Rabbi. I'm not faking it. No, no, I, I understand that. I know decision, that. decision, though, but it has had a, it has a, it's had a very positive impact on, on my family. And, and I think it, it makes it so that they're not always thinking about it either. At least I would like to think that. Because when cancer strikes one member of the family, it really, in fact, strikes everybody in the family. It sure does. As every illness, as every loss, as every sure. death does. And the reverse, is the, ver- chronic- the reverse is true. Your recovery means that the members of your family have recovered a little bit more. Every time you recover from whatever test or whatever resection or whatever you're going through, you know, that affects not only you, but it affects them as well. So again, they are your students. They do what you tell them to do. I mean, they follow in your footsteps. That's what I'm trying to say. Well, and, and in that same way, I had two very good role models. Both my parents were cancer patients. Both died of the disease. And I spent time with them at bedside through much of it. I was in the same town and was over there and helping out all along. And observing my parents go through this um, with grace and harmony and in peace and acceptance, as a, as a caregiver, as one who is observing your own parents, it gave me strength when I saw them being strong too. And now that I am where they were, Mm-hmm. dealing and living with the cancer, I now see, I can now better see those who are around me, what it takes to make the others feel better. I hope I'm doing a good job. <laughs> well, I'm sure you are. And, and your kids look at you 
and they look at your grace and they look at your acceptance and they look at your joy and they look at the fact that you're not giving up to cancer and they learn just as you learn from your parents they learn from you when the time comes you may get sicker how to take care of you mm-hmm. you've taught them you don't have to say a word you've taught them and they've watched what you do and they naturally they learn that you you know i i always say that you don't have to talk a lot about raising kids you just have to make sure they see you doing the right thing and in your case that's exactly what's happening well well i'm glad but you know how hard that is being a parent and i think not just during not during my my cancer period my many many years the 30 years before the cancer stuff with my boys um I sure wish I was a better role model in my in my own actions. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when we were young and dumb, we were young and dumb. We got to take a break, and uh, we'll we'll continue after the break. Don't go away, anybody. David and I will be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. When you're wandering after a life loss, you're really wandering in two directions at the same time. Part of you wants to go back, and part of you wants to go forward. That was also true of the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert with Moses. They didn't want to go back to being slaves, of course, but they did want to go back to the familiarity of home in Egypt. It was predictable and known, and they were afraid, like everyone is, of the unknown. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, A GPS for Grief and Healing, available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Believe it or not, the Bible talks a lot about grief and healing and can be a powerful source for us to move forward. For example, after Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt where they'd been slaves, they wandered in the desert for 40 years before God would let them into the promised land. God only wanted those who'd been born free, who'd never known slavery, to enter Israel. Those who had been slaves had to die out before their descendants would be allowed to enter the Promised Land. Find out more in Rabbi Mel Glazer's award-winning book, And God Created Hope. Available at Amazon and in Kindle format. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Robert Mel's back with my good friend and guest David Arnstein, who's been talking about liver cancer. Oh, it's a very happy, happy, happy topic, but he is a happy guy. And as he said last segment, there, there are two ways to deal with these things with cancer. You can either be a warrior, and if you're a warrior, you end up either winning or losing or giving up. Or you can live with it 
and and just try to live a decent, good life like you were before you got cancer. And that's his style. He says he's not, his life is not a whole lot different than it was before he got cancer. Well, I know that he's not telling 100% of the truth, but we'll let him go because he's my friend and he can say what he wants. But the point is, and he's right, and everybody out there knows it, it's how you deal with loss in your life that gives that loss meaning. Cancer is neutral. It's good, it's bad, it's whatever it is, but it's, it's neutral. What gives it meaning is how we deal with cancer. So, you know, if, if your grandmother gets cancer you're, and she's going to die soon, then your job is to help her do that by uh, completing your relationship with her and apologizing and forgiving her and telling her how much you love to, you know, spending time together and saying goodbye. And that's what you do. So death becomes a blessing, a gift, if you will, which leads me to the last thing I want to talk about, David. And uh, when I wrote the intro to this show, I talked about the blessings of cancer or the gifts of cancer. And I would love for you to talk uh, about what gifts cancer has given you. Yes, this is, this is, I think, a very interesting topic and one that, frankly, really surprised me when I, when I look back. And that is, after going through the process of understanding, dealing with my mortality, perhaps imminent mortality, the true existential trend that those with chronic diseases have, um, I'd even go to the cemetery and think of what it's going to be like Mm-hmm. underground. What's going to happen here when I'm not here? What's going to happen at my funeral? It was a fascinating, fascinating time for me. It was, it was intellectual, but there was emotion in there as well. And it was a matter of contemplation. And it was, once I came to terms with all of that, I recognize what is important in life. It's my family. It's the beauty of waking up every morning. It's the beauty of, of living life and looking at it through a different lens. And this sounds trite to say you're looking at life through a different lens, but I have to tell you, it's true. I now look at what I have and what I'm facing as a blessing, as a gift. Because, and when you say that to people, people have a very difficult time understanding what you mean by that. How can that be? My God, I would hate to be in your shoes with stage four colon cancer. Well, like I said before, I don't have a choice of getting cancer or not. I got it. Right. But now I look at it and I say, my goodness, this is fantastic. Now that I have it, this is fantastic. Why? Because I got some more time. I would, I would not like to drop dead of a heart attack or be hit by a bus and die instantly. Because then I would have lost what is now I've exp- what I've experienced over the last two and a half years, the beauty of my relationships with my family and friends, of the beauty of the world around me, of looking at the little things that would frustrate 
whoever, all the time, is it disappears. I can stand in a long grocery line and pick the wrong grocery line. And in the past, I'd get frustrated and my blood pressure would rise. And, and now, hey, this is better. It's whatever it is. It's the way it is. That's right. And, uh, and I chuckle. I laugh. I laugh to myself in line that I don't mind this so much. Yeah, I'm late for an appointment. That's okay. <laughs> yeah. That appointment's not life and death. I'm dealing with life and death. <laughs> right. I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, it's just so interesting, and so many people tell me similar kinds of things. You know, they, I mean, I know people whose spouse has died, for example. Now, to me, loss is loss. Okay, someday we're going to mourn your loss. Not anytime soon, please, God. But someday, the day will come when the little bitty cancers will get bigger and bigger, and you know what's going to happen. So I talk to people that have, uh, whose loved ones have died all the time, and they tell me, Rabbi, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that when my husband died, he gave me a gift. And I asked them to elaborate and... There was a lady in the congregation a couple months ago who said, you know, I'm free to be who I want to be. I don't have to ask anybody's permission. It doesn't depend on anybody else. Uh, it's me. When my daddy died, my mother never remarried. And I asked her once, how come you never remarried? And she said, because I'm free. If I want to take myself out to dinner, I'll take myself out to dinner. If I want to have mac and cheese at home and put my feet up, watch TV, you know, I don't have to ask anybody. That's just what I do. And in a, so in a sense, your cancer has given you a kind of freedom that you say you had before, but I think you've got a different kind of freedom. This is more existential freedom. Oh, absolutely. You, you really, you're, you're it. You are the decider. As one of the great presidents of our time said, there you are the decider. There's another interesting thing is that, you know, often people say, well, what's on your bucket list? Yeah. And, and I say, you know what? I, I've got a couple things, but it's not any different now than it was before. Mm -hmm. I, live, I live now as if I'm going to continue to live forever. I live still that same way, even though that threat, that existential threat, could be imminent. And again, that goes back to the very idea we were talking about before. If we sit here and suffer thinking about the cancer all the time and not living yep. our lives, yep. then we've, 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 we've bowed down to the cancer and the cancer is won. That's on, right. On one, on one battlefront, if you want to use the term battle, because I don't like to use that. I know, but if you do, people who do use that, they've lost the war already. They've lost the battle because the cancer controls everything they do. Now, some people are so sick, whether it's cancer or anything else, that they feel like they have to fight the battles. It's, and not everybody is as joyful as you are. When, when you are 
right when I look at my parents, there's a point where you can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. That you have to you have to give in to the the disease. Your body's not functioning anymore. Your mind stops working like it used to work. And you know that's a, that's at a different point. But as long as I have the ability to of my mind, and even through the the, the rough surgeries and the chemo, um, you have to do what you have to do. And um, and when you're there, I for, for me, I don't like to complain. I don't like to complain. Every now and then it happens where I'll, I try to do it objectively. Yeah, it hurts when I get out of bed after my surgery. Right. But that's it. I just do it. It hurts, and then you get out of bed. Right. Because sharing that stuff with people, A, does you no good. Because, I mean, there are people who care, but nobody really cares. They got their own stuff to deal with. And B, you're not helping anybody else. And the people who take care of you and who love you, you know, are worried when you share that kind of information with them. Mm-hmm. But again, they need to know it sometimes because they can see it. They of say, course. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah, it hurts. Yeah. And they see me struggle after surgery to, to, to sit up. And, um, but then I sort of, yeah, it hurts like crazy. But I chuckle and laugh and say, isn't this crazy? At least I'm able to mm-hmm. sit up. <laughs> Do you, I, I, had, um, I had a conversation with a, Another member of the congregation this afternoon, and he was talking about, he's got similar kinds of issues that you do, and he talked about being so very fatigued. He used that word, and you used that word about 20 minutes ago, and I wanted to ask you that as the process goes on and you're feeling better, do you still get fatigued or not? Right now, right now no. That fatigue was caused by the, by the, by the chemotherapy, um, which really beats you up. And, uh, and then the surgeries, it's a different kind of thing. It's just, you know, I have my, my abdomen has a 15, 16-inch uh, um, incision that goes from my solar plexus down towards my right hip. And uh, so if you cut all those stomach muscles, it hurts. Yeah. I'm looking forward to swinging a golf club soon. I couldn't do it now. But I do plan on going skiing in the next couple of weeks. I don't want to know this, David. <laughs> you do want to know this, but I don't want to know this. I'm going to do it. I love it. <laughs> I know you do. I, I Look, I, I, as, as I've said before, I've been skiing once in my life, and the biggest problem I had was when the tree came up to meet me. <laughs> and I quickly learned to around them. You don't, you don't you know? greet trees. You say bye-bye to the trees. Yeah, well, I <laughs> fell down. That's what I did. But anyway... Yeah, I know you're looking for it. I know you love it. And I know it's, again, becoming part of who you were beforehand. Correct. Correct. And I live it knowing that I might have another liver surgery. I'm going to be beginning chemo again in 10 days. Uh, So I hope to get some skiing in before the chemo gives me too much of that stuff that makes it so it's not fun to ski. Is chemo... Two days a week, three days a week. How often is chemo? Ten days. Ten days. 
10 days in a row? No, I'm, I'm taking, I start chemo 10 days from now, February okay. 20th. And is it one day a week, two days a week? It's, How do they do one, it? This one is, this one is different because of my, the neuropathy, one of the chemo drugs I'm not going to take. I'm going to be taking um, another one. And on this one, fortunately, they have a oral version of it. So I'm not going to have the severe um, uh, detrimental effects of the one chemo drug. This one has some other ones that, that could prevent me from skiing, uh, depending on whether they affect me or not. And I hope they don't. I hope I can move through it fine, but it'll go on for six months. Wow. Two weeks on, I'll take pills for two weeks on, one week off, two weeks on, one week off. That's okay. easy. Well, you say it's easy. <laughs> I know, because you just take it and you just take it. That's it. That's what you do because it helps you live, and that's the point. You know, I, I look at this, and um, it really is. This, the, it's the river of cancer, and I'm going to float it, and I'm going to float it with gusto. I'm going to float it with laughter, humor, joy, and do all I can to overcome it. So I can well, do. Uh, yeah, I've never and met it's anybody. A challenge. I've got a new challenge in life. <laughs> and I'm up uh, to challenges. Great. I, I've never met anybody who deals with cancer like you do. You're so accepting and even not, you won't misunderstand when I say loving your cancer. But you love it like it's a little kid inside of you and you have to keep it safe. Interesting so way to put it. I, I think that, I think that, um, that um, analogy, that metaphor could work. Yep. I like it a lot. I like it. But unfortunately, my friend, we got to go. Already. Yeah, I know. It's hard to believe because two people like us could talk forever. But and we often do. <laughs> but we do it over gefilte fish and egg salad and all the rest of the stuff that we do so I want to thank you for coming on I want to thank you for being the teacher for all my listeners and if anybody has any questions they want to ask David I think the best thing is to write them to me send them to me email me at Rabbi Mel at grief okay that's G-R-I-E-F okay Dot com, and I will make sure that um, David gets them. I'd so be David, very happy to respond you. if there's anything I can do to help. Uh, no, you will. I know you will. Thank you. And to all my listeners, thanks for listening in, and we'll be back next time. Good night. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.